Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms of Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms of preteens, teens, and young adults. My mission is to first and foremost support and encourage you, mom, so that you can live well and reclaim your life. Two, the show will help you have the best possible relationships with your teens so that you can communicate, motivate, and guide them effectively and actually enjoy them. And third, I will bring you top-notch guests who will share the newest in adolescent research and trends so you can be prepared and aware of what your teens are facing today. Always you will leave each episode armed with practical parenting tips. Welcome back, everyone, to the 223rd episode of Power Your Parenting, Moms of Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. You are going to love this episode. Today, we are going to dive into a teenager's emotional life. I think what makes parenting teens so challenging is dealing with their intense emotions. Sometimes you are the target of their emotional storms, and others, they turn their emotions inward and you worry about them being depressed or anxious. So how many times have we brought up a simple request to our teens, but it turns out not to be so simple because it triggers a huge emotional response. Moms can find themselves avoiding talking about important topics because they want to avoid these arduous emotions. To talk about this nuanced subject of teenage emotions, I invited Dr. Lisa Damore, the author, of the emotional lives of teenagers to talk about this. In this episode, we focus on her chapter called Managing Emotions, Part One, Helping Teens Express Their Emotions, and then the following chapter called Managing Emotions, Part Two, Helping Teens Regain Emotional Control. Recognized as a thought leader by the American Psychological Association, Lisa Damore, PhD, co-host the Ask Lisa podcast, writes about adolescence for the New York Times, appears as a regular contributor to CBS News, works in collaboration with UNICEF, and maintains a clinical practice. She is the author of three New York Times bestsellers, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents, Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood, and Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. She and her husband have two daughters and live in Shaker Heights, Ohio. Welcome, Dr. Lisa Damore. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. So the first question I ask all my guests is if you're a mom, and if so, what are their ages? I am a mom. I have two daughters. One is 19 and one is 12. They'll both turn 20 and 13 respectively in a few months. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So you're right there with all our listeners. Yes. Yes, I am. (laughs) That's so awesome. And you just wrote a book, I guess this year, right? It published in February of 2023. The Emotional Lives of Teenagers Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents. And I have to tell you, it is so good. It oh, is thank you. rich. It's interesting. I told you, like I bought the book and I listened to the book and 
you're a good storyteller. You kind of pull us into those stories. And the research is fascinating. And I think it's so helpful for moms to understand this foreign land of adolescent emotions. That was my hope, you know, to make what feels so strange and sometimes unsettling make more sense to the yeah, adults who yeah, are on the you job. you did. You yeah. did. So in the beginning of the book, you talk about Adolescent Emotions 101, getting past three big myths. Can you pick one of them and tell us what they are? Sure. So why don't we go with the myth that difficult feelings are bad for teenagers? It felt very revelatory for me when I realized that adults are scared that their teenagers will be harmed by very, very intense negative emotions. I don't think I'd put it in such blunt terms for myself. And I think this is a place where, especially given, you know, your podcast and it's centering on the experience of actually parenting, you know, it's so valuable to be a parent myself and go through that experience with a tween and a teen where they get very, very upset which is natural to adolescents. And it's hard to watch when that has happened. have thought to myself, thank goodness I do this professionally because yes. if I did not, I would be scared for my kid about how upset they are. Mm-hmm. And so it was interesting to boil it down and put it in those terms that I think adults can worry that it will hurt their kid for their child to be in a great deal of pain. So what I unpack in that section of the book is For the most part, this is not true, that we're all built to withstand actually quite surprising amount of intense and unpleasant emotion. And in fact, for the most part, the opposite is true, that going through painful experiences and especially doing so with loving support often gives rise to maturation, helps people learn and grow. If you're upset because you did something wrong, you're not going to make the same mistake twice if you really feel the pain of that kids who go through a breakup and their heart is broken and they have to find their way through it. Like they learn about themselves. They learn about the people around them who can support them. They grow and change through it. So there's so much value actually in distress and that it is growth giving. And I think Colleen, you know, you're a clinician, I'm a clinician. I think about in my time as a clinician, kids I've cared for who've dealt like with massive tragedies, you know, like the death of a friend or the loss of a parent. And it's so hard to watch them grapple with that. And yet, I don't know if you have this experience as a clinician, but there's an almost universal thing that happens that indicates how much they're growing, which is they become very annoyed with the petty concerns of their classmates. The things their classmates are concerned about suddenly strike them as very small and very silly. And then you're like, there it is. Like there is the maturation that arises as a function of going through something horrible. Mm -hmm. So this is largely mythical, though it is hard to watch. Kids do grow and change, often for the better as a function of going through hard things. And then for all three myths in that opening chapter, there's a little asterisk, except for when. And, you know, of course, the asterisk on this is trauma. Like we don't want anyone to be traumatized. Trauma is an emotional experience that does do harm. And the way we think about trauma is that it's anything that overwhelms the individual, right? So it outmatches the coping that they have. So we don't want to shield kids from getting upset. We do want to shield kids from trauma. That was such an important distinction that you made Mm -hmm. there. That was very helpful. So I want to focus towards the end of the book. Well, first of all, your whole book has so many practical takeaways. 
and your distinctions are so helpful. And I just have to share, you had one subtitle. It was like something was annoying about how they chew. Yes, it's in chapter three, which is basically the what to expect when you're expecting a teenager chapter. That's not what it's yes. called. And there's a subsection called why your teen can't stand how you chew. Yes, yes. <laughs> I laughed so hard because I think my daughter was 12 or 13 at the time. And she was telling me, oh, my gosh, mom, it's so annoying how you chew. Oh, she actually, it was like literally chewing that she had an issue with. Yeah, yeah. She told me that exactly. <laughs> and so, of course, my feelings were hurt. And I thought, gosh. And then I saw a client in my office. And it was a mother and a tween. And what the tween said to her mother was the exact same thing. Oh, my gosh, mom, it's so annoying when you chew. And inside of me, I was like, oh. It's what they all do. It was very yep. comforting. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> yes. All right. So in this chapter, helping teens express their feelings, what I loved is you talked about why talking about feelings work. And you shared two studies that I thought were so interesting. Yeah. So it's kind of remarkable. We want teenagers to talk about their feelings. And then when they do, we often get uncomfortable. So like when a teenager comes to us and says, like, I feel really anxious or I feel really angry or I feel really upset, even though theoretically this is what we've been hoping for, in actuality, we're often like, uh-oh, oh no, like how do I make this go away? And I think what's really important is for us to focus on research findings that we have that show that the mere act of saying a feeling word reduces psychological distress. And we've measured this a couple of different ways. In one study, we use electrodes on the skin that measure physiological arousal, how stirred up somebody is. In another study, we use MRI machines, which watch the activity of the brain in real time. And in these studies, what we do is we bring people into lab settings and we show them distressing photographs, things that are hard to look at. And to half of the people in the study, we say, tell us what it feels like to look at these photographs. And to the other half of the people, we say, tell us the facts of what's in the photographs. And what we see is, to start with the second group, the people who are in the facts condition where they talk about the facts, they get more upset. They stay very stirred up, like nothing changes in terms of their emotions as they describe the images. The people in the feelings condition, as they are saying, oh, these are hard to look at, these are making me uncomfortable, we can actually watch their physiological response calm down and ease off. And it's incredible, right? But again, back to being a parent, I have to remember these studies at nine o'clock mm -hmm. at night when I have a teenager standing in front of me complaining about something because part of me like just wants to shut it down because yeah. I'm tired. But then if I think like, no, the fact that she is standing here saying, I am frustrated, I am upset, I am unhappy, it is on its own bringing relief. And mostly my job is just to be empathic. Yeah, so that's such a great thing to remember as a mom, that if they can name that, that that's actually bringing them relief. Yeah. If we think, oh, no, and our little fight, flight, freeze goes crazy, but it is bringing relief. So I think this is a hard one for mothers, this category around listening, that listening really matters. And I know as a mom, I can see how difficult that is. And then, of course, it's easier to see in our practice, right? <laughs> you want to talk about what that means to really listen? Sure. 
you know, it's funny. I think we often think we're listening, but what we're doing is we're waiting for the kid to pause so we can say something. And my 12-year-old and I were talking about this, and she said to me, Mom, I can see from the look on your face when you've stopped listening and you know what you're going to say and you're just waiting for me to stop. Like, you know, and of course she has me dead to rights, you know. I think it's easier to do in the office, right? But at home, especially, I have a gimmick that I do for myself that actually really, really helps, which is that I imagine that the kid who's talking to me is a reporter and that I'm the editor and that she is reading me the article of her distress. And then when I get to the end of the article, it is my job to produce the headline. So I have to listen so intently that I can distill what she has said get it down to some compact phrasing, add nothing new and like offer it back to her. I will tell you, I almost never get this right. Very rarely do I even offer the headline I've tried to come up with. But the exercise of trying to headline what's being said makes me listen. And they can tell. They can tell when we're truly listening. And I do share in the book like my one shining example of when I got it really right because uh, it doesn't happen very often. And the example is when in April of 2020, my older daughter was a high school sophomore and she started to get a full understanding of how bad this was going to be, you know, and how extensive the lockdown was going to be. Do you remember at that point, we're like, oh, like you'll be home for spring break. You'll be home for, you know, like, and it just, it was dawning on us all very slowly. Yes. So she had this like sudden full clarity on this and she just had a rant. She was like, I cannot believe this. They have taken away seeing my friends. They've taken away lunch. They've taken away dances. They've taken away sports. They've taken away activities. They've taken away the fun in the hallways, but they have left us tests, lectures, <laughs> you know, <laughs> note-taking, you know, homework. She's like, they took away everything that made school fun and they just left us school. And she was just so mad. And I produced the best headline I will ever produce. I said, oh man, it's like school is all vegetables and no dessert. And she was like, yes. And like, at least for that five minutes, I had helped for a little bit. So that's what we're going for. And that's actually how we can make ourselves listen. I love that metaphor. And I've heard before, and I know it's true in my experience, just even trying to get the headline right like we don't have to get it right. Yes, yes. They can tell if we're actually trying to understand and they'll help correct us. They'll say, no, it's not that, it's that. Exactly, right? So if you just present it like, it's like this, and they'll be like, no, but points for trying. And right, like 100%, you don't have to get it right. And that just encourages them that you're really trying. Mm-hmm. And they don't get mad at you if you get it wrong because you, yeah. you actually are you trying. tried. And you were really listening and you weren't offering advice and you weren't asking questions and you weren't making suggestions and doing all the stuff that rubs them the wrong way. Yes. All right. So you talk about empathy goes further than we think. Yeah. So, you know, it's so funny. I feel like you could write an article titled, we want teens to talk to us, but we blow it when they do. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, yes, like everybody's like, why? How can I get my teenager to talk to me? And then senior comes home and is like, guess what happened? And the parents are like, well, why did you do that? You know, like we can't help ourselves. And I have to tell you, I think 98% of the time, all the kid wants is for us to be like, oh man, that stinks. Like, I'm so sorry. Like that's all they want. We truly can very rarely fix it. They truly can very rarely fix it. They may not want to fix it. It may not even be fixable. 
right? Mm-hmm. They just want to tell somebody like the dumb thing that happened or the dumb thing they did, you know, and to have that an adult be like, oh, yeah, I see that. That's not so great, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm sorry. Teenagers are like, great. Okay. You're not freaking out, but you're not minimizing this. Next thing. It's incredibly simple and effective, and yet we almost never use it. Yes. And when I'm talking to moms, you know, the moms who are married, I'll say, how do you feel when you're trying to tell your partner, oh my gosh, this happened, and they try to fix it? Yeah. And they get that. And so I said, well, why do you think it would be different with your teen? Yep. They just want empathy. But I mean, I understand it as a mom because we think we're being helpful. We do. And I actually, on my website, I have a bunch of downloadable bookmarks that are free. And I have one called How to Manage a Meltdown. It's a nine-step one. And step number one is listen without interrupting. Step two is offer empathy. No, step three is validate. Step four is support coping. And you can get down to advice giving, but it's like step eight. And you very rarely get that far. That's so true. That's really good. What a great idea. So moms, go get that bookmark. All right. So I also liked your small pleasures, big time mood control. Yeah. Okay. So we all know intuitively that teenagers feel things more intensely than kids do and adults do. Like teenagers do have very powerful emotions. And mostly we pay attention to this around when they're in distress, because when they're upset, they get very, very upset. They feel it very acutely. But one of the really cool things about teenagers is they actually feel everything more intensely. So pleasures are more potent for them. And I talked in the book about this. I think it's important for adults to remember, to try to remember this. And I grew up in Colorado and I worked as a bus girl until I could buy myself a car. I bought myself, this was in 1986, I bought myself a 1979 diesel rabbit, Volkswagen rabbit. It was great. And it was mine. It was mine. And I bought it for $900 and I sold it for $700 two years later when I went to college. I was very proud of myself. And I have such vivid memories of driving with the music on and the windows down in the beauty of Colorado and it being like vibrating with delight in that. And I can't recapture that at 52. I can't count on those kinds of things. Like I have a lot of joy in my life, but like that kind of potent, you know, kind of pleasurable experience. And so what we have to remember is if we are trying to cheer up a teenager, it may not take as much as we think. And I don't share the story in the book, but it was such a good example of that same kid who was like so upset about school. I remember at another point in the pandemic, you know, and we're all like five months in and miserable and whatever. One day she's like, oh, I have to go vibe. And she gets a candle and a cup of tea. And she just sits there and gets herself to a blissful state. And I was like, oh my God, I could have all the candles in the world, all the tea in the world. I would still be as grumpy as possible. And I was like, there it is. There is the adolescence, like small pleasures, big time mood control. So the point here being, if your kid's very upset and they don't want to talk, that's fine. And they do probably want to be comforted or you can comfort them. You don't have to go big. You can be like, do you want takeout from your favorite place, right? Or I tell the story in the book, I thought this was a brilliant move. A mom who was pretty sure her son was going to get cut from the basketball team. So on the day that she went to go pick him up, she threw the dog in the car. You know, genius maneuver, right? Yeah. So I think just tuning in, like, what does your kid go to when they're upset? And I think there's so much that adolescents do to regulate their emotions that falls below our level of perception we go big or we miss it. And I think that watching a show they loved as a kid 
you know, as a kind of like wildly adaptive thing that teenagers do that we're like, why are they watching Phineas and Ferb, right? It's yeah. so interesting to me. And I think you mentioned in the book about girls doing makeup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also increasingly very elaborate skincare routines. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And again, you know, I've heard adults be like, why are they so much with the elaborate skincare routines? And I'm like, uh, consider the alternatives. There are yeah. lots of ways for kids to like take the edge off. I'm good with face cream. Like, <laughs> yes, yes. It's interesting. During COVID, I had plenty of teenage girls, for sure two of them, would completely do their makeup. And it was very elaborate mm-hmm. while we're talking the whole time is, you know, because I'm in their room. And so yep. they're just doing their makeup. But it's very relaxing. Yep. And they're talking. And they're talking. And they're talking and talking. Wasn't that an interesting thing in COVID to care for kids from their bedrooms? It was. What was your most interesting? I think for me, the thing that was so interesting was how unguarded they were. And it's what you're describing, like doing their makeup, like kids like lounging, Eddie's way, or like with their cat, you know, coming in. Yeah, the cat tail going back and forth. Going back and forth. (laughs) But there was just this way in which it was like... I don't know if you had this experience, but, you know, before the pandemic, I was like, teletherapy, you can't do that. You know, I'm a snob, like you have to be in person. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, these kids are so at ease and so forthcoming and you could totally do this. Yeah, they're drawing or they're just, and they're taking you around their house. Yeah. So you get to see sides of them. Yeah. You meet their dogs and their cats. (laughs) A lot of pets. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yes. All right. So. How do you get teens to open up? Okay. So if we go with the idea that talking about feelings is an important way to get relief, though we recognize it's not the only option. And I think it's really important to say that just because we're so, as adults, biased towards that. My kid needs to talk to me about their feelings. And I'm like, well, unless listening to their sad playlist is doing the job, in which case that's fine too. But there can be times where we want kids to open up or we want to help them open up. And I would say probably. The number one like heading for this is they have to feel that they're in control, that teenagers by their nature are driven towards autonomy. And if they feel like they're on someone else's agenda, they're already just working to get off of it. You know, the goal is to make it stop. And so I think about, you know, at dinner when we're like, how was school? I think some kids will go for that. Other kids are like, okay, you're calling a meeting. You're setting the agenda. I did this all day with adults. I'm not doing it again. And Mm -hmm. so one of the things that I share in the book there was a real insight for me is I discovered how common it is. And actually, this was happening in our house too, for teenagers to wait until their parents were in bed to want to talk to them. And I was like, holy moly, why is this happening everywhere? And then I realized, I was like, oh, they have total say. They decide if there's a meeting, they show up, you know, they decide what the agenda will be. And I've actually had teenagers say to me, oh, you know, at night, my parents don't ask so many questions and they don't bring up new topics. I'm like, of course we don't. Like, trying to go to sleep. (laughs) And then, if they want the meeting to end, they just walk out. And so, I think the way you get teens to open up is you actually create conditions where they have autonomy, or you are receptive to the times when they want to talk. So, it may be also when you're in the car and they don't have to look at you directly. And also, maybe when you're three minutes from the house, so they know it can't go on forever and ever, right? So, they know that they're not cornered. But I think sometimes it can be like, being more specific, not how was school, but what was the best thing that happened today? And what was the dumbest? You know, like, that's the kind of question I would ask, mm-hmm. you know, kind of homing in on smaller things, because how was school? Like, that's just a giant question. So I think it can be done. But I think 
what I would say overwhelmingly, and it's like back to that, you know, we want kids to talk and then we blow it when they do. I think so often I've asked my questions at dinner. I got no answer. I guess it's over. And then I'm onto my to-do list or doing the next thing. And a kid will try to start a conversation in my own home. will be like, guess what happened? I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so, so I think we have to be attentive to that kind of thing. Yeah. In my experience, both personally and with teens, it is on their own agenda. And one of those reasons I see is that I thought it was a great idea to try to talk to my daughter on the way to middle school and on the way back from middle school. And it was not. And I finally figured out it's because she was in stress response. She was worried about school. Then she was obsessing about friends at school. But when I backed off, like you said, I'm not trying to push it. And I'm on my bed and my computer's open. She would jump on the bed and throw the dog up there. Mm -hmm. And you're right. She would talk for maybe 20 minutes and just Mm -hmm. pounce off. Mm -hmm. Yep. They have to be in the driver's seat. (laughs) Yeah. And so you said something good. So what if a parent's listening and they're thinking, well, that's not fair? Well, I think there's a couple ways to think about this. One is they are on adults' agendas all day. And I really mean it. I don't think any of us would make it past third period with for what our kids do in the course of the day. I mean, they go from class to class. They put up with a wide range of adults. I think If a kid is really lucky, a couple of adults a day are a good fit and the rest are adults that they are being very well-behaved for. (laughs) And the problem, of course, with teenagers is they're hugely clear-eyed. They can absolutely see the foibles and faults of the adults around them. It adds an extra layer of self-restraint that they have to demonstrate all day long, which they do. And this is what we want. We want them to be good, solid citizens all day long at school. And so if they come home and we're like, how was school? And they're like, I'm not playing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay, like fair enough, you know. (laughs) So I think that's key. And then just recognizing that autonomy is probably the single most powerful force in teenagers is the drive towards autonomy. And also recognizing that the single most powerful force for teenage mental health is a strong connection with caring adults. Like we meet them halfway or we meet them more than halfway. Yeah, I completely agree. That's awesome. So valuing nonverbal expression. Yeah. I'll say this was probably for me the biggest learning in the book. And I said like the culture tends to, you know, value talking and talking. And of course, as psychologists, like we tend to value talking and talking, right? That's really, you know, where the action is. But in writing this book, I really developed much more appreciation for all of the nonverbal ways that kids get relief that are very effective for them. And for me, An emotion regulation strategy, if it brings relief and does no harm, it's a good strategy, right? So music is huge. Teenagers do a lot of emotional work listening to music, matching the music to their mood, putting on a sad playlist when they're sad, crying to get relief, hugely effective, putting on an angry playlist when they're angry, getting their feelings out that way, hugely effective. Teenagers make music, they make art. There were two examples that came to me after I wrote the book. And they're both from mothers of boys. And it's not an accident, you know, because we have so much cultivated girls to be much more verbal about their emotions. But they're both beautiful examples of boys using nonverbal expression to get relief. So the first was the mother of a 15-year-old boy. And she was telling me there's a problem with the boy's schedule. And what she said is, it's not working anymore because he doesn't have enough time. He used to come home from school and play basketball for an hour to blow off steam. And then he would sit down and do his homework right there, like literally discharging emotion, like blowing off steam. And you're like, 
Okay, what more could you want from a kid? That he comes home, blows off steam for an hour playing basketball and sits down and does his work. Mm -hmm. If that's how he's managing the frustration of the day, like, fine, right? And then the other example was the mother of a 12-year-old boy in a difficult divorce situation and something that happened the boy was very upset about and appropriately so. And the boy came to his mom and he was like, is there something I can break? And Mm -hmm. true confessions, before I wrote this book, I probably would have been like, ooh, I don't know about that. Having written the book, I'm like, good job, buddy. You don't have the words for it, but if you could just break something and you're going to get permission on what you're going to break, you'll get it out. So I think that for me, the upshot of writing this book is like much more aware. And what I said about like, I think teenagers are regulating emotion all day, very effectively in ways that fall below the perceptual level of adults or that we disregard or actually criticize. I love that you named that. It's so true. That's Mm. really good. Thank you. And I especially love all the playlists because yes, of course, like we did it. Yeah, they do it. They do it. And it's like like, so adaptive. And you were writing about the angry playlist that it didn't make them more angry. Nope, it does not. And I love that somebody researched that, you know, because people think like, oh, I'll just make them more angry to listen to that angry music. And what they actually found was it deepened their experience of their emotion and sped them through it. And I think that's kind of like, Sometimes the only way out is through, you know, when a teenager goes and gets on a negative playlist, they're like, I'm just going to do this thing so I can get past it. And it works like that. Right. So I would imagine like TV series or movies can be the same thing. That's right. Like that they know how they're going to feel like a sad movie and they deliberately watch it to catalyze that feeling and then it resolves and then they move on. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. So how can we recognize unhealthy emotional expression? So if we go with, you know, anything that brings relief and does no harm is good, we're just going to go with the opposite. Like there's a lot of ways that kids get relief, but there's a cost. So in terms of expression, it may be that they're harming other people, right? Obviously, like hitting is expressing emotions, but it's not okay. You know, cutting oneself is an expression and it brings relief and it expresses something, but it's not something we're going to want to have be a strategy that kids rely on. You know, saying nasty things to others about oneself. But I think the key is when kids are doing these things, we have to recognize they are getting some relief. They are expressing emotion, even cutting, which can be so distressing to know about. Like it is a form of coping. It's just a form of coping that comes with a very high price tag. And it's not that we want them to not cope. And it's not that we even don't want them to express distress. We want them to have strategies that don't come at a cost. And I know you talked a lot in the beginning of the book about how in some kind of gender base that they internalize feelings or externalize feelings. But I think you said to the degree, and you might have been talking about girls or I made that up in my head, but the, maybe it's because I am a mother of a daughter, but to the degree that they come at you is the degree that they're suffering. Did you say something like that? Yeah, so I did. You know, one of our rules is that girls tend to internalize, boys tend to externalize. And what that means is, you know, girls are more likely when they're in distress to suffer from, you know, kind of collapsing on themselves, anxiety, depression, disorders like that. Whereas boys are more likely to act out, get themselves in trouble, engage in delinquency, you know, harm others. And I think what's true is that it's a lot easier to empathize with a girl's or an internalized form of distress. And I think what's critically important is for us to remember that when teenagers are externalizing, when they are being unkind, when they are 
harmful to others acting out, that is distress being expressed. And unfortunately, not only does it do harm, it's being expressed in a way that doesn't tend to cultivate a lot of empathy or support. So we're not going to get through all of your next chapter. So they'll have to buy your book. So the next chapter is on managing emotions. So helping teens regain emotional control. When do emotions need to be brought under control? So, I mean, you're kind of talking about that. Yeah. Anything you want to add? I mean, I think what I want to add is that we see expressing emotions and taming them on equal footing and of equal value, right? That so often as psychologists and as parents, we're trained on like, how do I help my kid to express, express, express? And that's great if it's working and if it's what your kid wants. But sometimes expressing can turn into rumination where they're just spinning their wheels and going round and round and round. And actually, the more they talk, the worse they feel. So we have an entire equally valuable category of emotion regulation strategies, which is a basically like rein it in category. And this isn't dismissing or minimizing, but it's would comforting that kid bring it under control? Would a little distraction help? Like distraction has a place in this. You know, too much mm-hmm. distraction is bad, but a little distraction goes, you know, is how a lot of us get through the day. Would problem solving be the answer? You know, but you have to do it very carefully. Would thinking about it from a fresh perspective be the answer? You know, so we have a universe of taming options. And I think under ideal conditions, we're watching kids express some, tame some, and we're supporting kids and expressing some and taming some. I love the story that you talked about. I don't know if it's a girl or boy, but it was 14 and had the fear of dying. Can you tell that story? Because I think that's very helpful. Yeah. And I bet you've seen this too as a clinician. I have. You know, it's very interesting. You know, 14 is a cognitive watershed that it's kind of awesome, right? What happens around it, roughly 14, you know, and it can be driven by puberty. So it tends to be a little earlier for girls than boys because they hit puberty earlier. But Piaget was, you know, the great developmentalist. He talks about it in terms of the achievement of abstraction, which is basically the ability to think about thoughts, to think about abstract things in a whole new way, to see things through multiple perspectives. And it doesn't matter how smart a kid is, that's not going to get them there faster. It's really a neurological development. And there have been times where I was giving talks to parents of eighth and ninth grade girls. And I would say, you know, over the course of this span of time, the way your daughter thinks is going to change pretty dramatically, you know, in terms of her ability to reason and think about things that are abstract. And I could tell from the look on parents' faces for whom that had it already happened to their kid, because there's like this wondrous recognition on some faces, and then just puzzlement on the others. Like, what are you talking about? Like, she thinks fine, right? And so It's wonderful. It's also why we suddenly present books like To Kill a Mockingbird in the eighth grade, right? Like you can sort of bring across different kinds of literature at this point in education, but it can be very unsettling for the kid. And the story I tell, I feel like I've seen this several times, is they can have suddenly like profound philosophical or existential crises. And so I tell the story of a girl who suddenly became very, very frightened about death, that she would die or that people she loved would die. Okay, she was 14. It's not like she didn't know about death before. It's not like she discovered death. But the profundity of it, the finality of it, just ran her over, right? Like, I mean, she just could take it in with this new cognitive capacity and really, really destabilized her. And her parents were great. Like, we're trying to talk with her about it. And the more they talked about it, like, the more destabilized she would become. And so my advice, which is like really rare, 
you guys can't talk about this anymore, not so much. And we came up with an approach that just contained it, minimized it without seeming dismissive. Because usually what happens is a little more time goes on, kids get used to the new gear that their mind can work in, and then they can let things move along. But I remember sitting with another kid in my practice who at 14 became so upset about human suffering on the planet so upset about it and like paralyzed by it. And I remember saying to her, okay, you being paralyzed does not reduce the suffering of people who suffer. Either you're going to go start raising money or doing a project or don't think about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's yeah. a very funny place to get to. And it's very unique to that neurological event. Yeah, I think my daughter became very sensitive to meat and the yes. animals. Yes. And I think she was around 14. Yeah. And suddenly like, wait a minute, this is an actual chicken. <laughs> this thing I've been eating all this time. <laughs> this thing had a life. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of extraordinary to watch, but it can be pretty hard on the kid. Yeah. So I just think that's so good for a parent to know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because what I've seen when that's happened is that I mean, parents are panicked about it and they think it's some diagnosis and to know this is just normal. They added a gear and it's a little, it's freaking them out. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been amazing. Do you have any last advice for the moms listening? Take good care of yourselves. It's so hard to parent a teenager. It's so fun. They are so wonderful and they are mm -hmm. such a workout sometimes. And I hope, I mean, if people are interested in this book, that's why I wrote it, to really support the adults who care for kids. And I think that if we have a way to understand what's happening and understand why it's happening and have a way to appreciate how much teenagers do on their own behalf, then we can help better. All right. So I have one last question for you. Sure. What have your daughters taught you about yourself? Oh, man, I am such a better person. Such a better person for being a parent. Right? You know, of course, they're like searing in their analysis of my shortcomings. You know, I think they point out my insecurities, right? They point out when I talk about myself more than I should, when I flex when I don't need to. You know, they point it out not in a gentle way. They roll their eyes. <laughs> no, they do not. <laughs> but they're right. They're right. You know, so I think that they really taught me to notice when I feel insecure and notice better and worse ways to handle it. They're, I'm better. I'm so much better for being a parent. Yeah, me too. I'd like to say my daughter is my biggest teacher. But that's not always a happy thing. Nope. <laughs> but it's an amazing thing. It's yeah. a really good thing. They see you like no one else sees you. They see you <laughs> right through you. Yeah. <laughs> They're awesome. They're awesome. <laughs> All right. So I imagine that they can get the emotional lives of teenagers anywhere books are sold. Yep. And I have a website, drlisademore.com. And if you would go to the How Can I Help tab, you'll see the downloadable bookmarks I mentioned. I have a course based on the book that people can enroll in. If they want to take a deep dive into it, I have a podcast called Ask Lisa, The Psychology of Parenting. And I'm on Instagram a lot. <laughs> awesome. I will put all of that in the show notes. Thank you again. I know you're really busy. Everybody's busy. Thank you for having me. <laughs> this concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting, Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. 
Also, my award-winning, best-selling books, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, and my newest release book, Dial Up the Dream, Making Your Daughter's Journey to Adulthood the Best for Both of You. You can find both of these books wherever books are sold. And you can find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com. And that has two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.